The Heritage End of Year Fund Drive is officially on. Become a member today at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Do you know what's going to happen next year in 2019? Find out on this episode of Tech Bytes. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 165 countries around the world, about a million listens a month. And today, I hope every single one of them is listening to Tech Bytes, to this very special last episode of the year, amazing, where we are going to do what we usually do, which is try and predict next year. So next year would be 2019, and to do that, we always try and bring in someone who is a part of the industry, who has a good bird's eye view, who can share some of what they've seen in the past to try and make a good guess of what's going to happen in the future. So I'm very happy to say today we have David Helbron, who is founding partner and chairman of a New York City-based law firm called Helbron & Levy, and they specialize in restaurants and food stuff, food companies. Food companies, restaurants, chefs, all any, that. anything hospitality related. Nice. So thank you for coming and thank you for agreeing to uh, make some guesses and some prognosticating for 2019. I will prognosticate as best as I can. It's nice to be here. Thank you. So truth be told, David and I had had a couple different conversations off the radio, out in real life in the world. And part of the reason why I invited him here is because he kind of agrees with what I think is going to happen next year in 2019. So it's always nice to bring in somebody to sort of um, make a new case and maybe validate some of the things that you've been guessing, um, but maybe are actually true. The world is so disagreeable these days. I'm, I'm happy you and I can sit here and agree on something. It feels great. In, in our little uh, repurposed shipping container in the backyard of Roberta's Pizza, it's like a little tiny bubble. It's a, it's a warm, cozy bubble. Yes, it is lovely here. And we have pizza whenever you want, so it's kind of a perfect place. So, David, you see so many restaurants and businesses. And ha how long have you been in business at the firm? So I started this law firm um, about 15 years ago. I had come from the restaurant industry. When I was 17 years old, I went to bartending school. There actually was such a thing. How were you able to go to bartending school at 17? Oh, well, they... It, I mean, it was a very rigorous process to get in, as I'm Mock, sure you can imagine. Mocktails? <laughs> no, I just signed a, a form that said I was 18 years old, and I gave them a check, and they were pretty happy with that. Okay. Um, so I, I graduated with a degree in bartending at 17, and since then I've always worked in restaurants. Uh, in the late 90s, I opened up some coffee bars and cafes in Manhattan. Got tired of doing that. Uh, it was just too hard to make a buck. You got to sell a lot of coffee to make money. And um, I had a law degree, long story. Uh, then I just started this law firm. All my friends were in the restaurant business, and I created a, a, a little niche for myself. Now we're a 17-person firm, the largest in the city, I think the largest in the world that only does hospitality. It sounds like Donald Trump when I say things like that. I'm sorry. I apologize for that. You know, you can say whatever the fuck you want the on this show. The largest thing, the largest in the world. It's terrible. Yeah, we, we can edit that out, right? <laughs> we just like 45 <laughs> or something like that. Right. It's almost like a Harry Potter thing. Don't say the name. I won't you know? say it again, I promise. 
So you have a great experience from inside the business and then outside the business and then just specializing in one industry really makes you an expert in the different trends and what people are encountering on the day-to-day with their business. You also do liquor license and all of that ancillary work for clients also. Yeah, we, we, we start when with clients who are opening restaurants from inception. Hey, I've got an idea. I need to raise some money. I'm a chef. Me and my bartender want to open up a place in, Brook- in Brooklyn and Bushwick, and we've got a couple hundred thousand bucks. We need to raise some more. Help us. And so then we help them raise the money. We help them open up the restaurant. We help them get their licenses and then try to help them stay in business. Ultimately, though, these days, we're also helping them close. It's very sad. So if I came to you today and I said, David, I have this great idea. I'm going to do this little family-owned and operated French bistro neighborhood kind of thing with maybe a small... Uh, boulangerie bread business what would your advice to me be for 2019 if I said to you you're what's it going to be like in 2019 you're what not a normal I do? person because you're married to a great chef so I'd say do it and do it, do it in my neighborhood um, <laughs> okay so not me a not person, you. a regular person anybody, anybody. R- any regular person I, I would say to um, probably think of something else to do um, it's just, it's very hard to make a small business work uh, in New York City. And when I'm talking today, I'm really just talking about the, the neighborhood I know, which is New York City. So what do you see on deck for 2019 that's coming that's going to be different next year from this year? Well, you're already starting to see the mom and pops, your neighborhood, fantastic little restaurant uh, close. <clears throat> and we're seeing more of them closing every, every day. We are on the other end of these phone calls. The phone call usually starts like this. Dude, I'm not making any fucking money. How do I get out of my lease? And we have had more of those calls this year than we've had forever. Um, And what's happening is owners are just getting squeezed. They're getting squeezed from high labor rates. You read all about the rents. That's a big issue. Obviously, the number one issue. Um, On and on. City is just not a conducive place for business if you're a small business owner. So that sounds certainly dire. Um, after the rents, what are the other impacting elements? If somebody's already in a lease, though, how does that change from when they first sign the lease? Because lease is typically the same for 10 to 15 years. Yeah, leases are usually 10 years. And... Um, it changes because the rents keep going up even in your lease. Um, and then all the other things that are happening, minimum wage is now going up, people are going out less. And so the charming husband and wife, two-person owned restaurant <clears throat> is gone. You, there's no breathing room anymore. It used to be, t- even 10 years ago, you could sign a lease and maybe you'd have a decent year, make a couple of bucks, $50,000, let's say. Okay, you can kind of live on that. And then next year would come around and maybe you'd have a couple of slow months and then you'd be like, okay, everything's going to be okay and slowly start to build a business. But now there's no breathing room left. And what I mean by that is if you are breaking even or just under breaking even and here comes 
big bad winter, for example, and you know it's going to be three months of a very slow period, which is which it is here in New York, January, February, and March are killers. Now, because the rent's so high, it's not a $5,000 rent, it's a $15,000 rent or a $20,000 rent, you actually have no, there's no more money. You can't skate by, you can't borrow a couple of bucks from somebody, and you start thinking about how I'm going to close this, this restaurant. Oh, that's so heartbreaking to hear that. One of my favorite neighborhood restaurants, Del Anima, in the West Village, which yeah, has been around for 10 years. Um, it's fantastic. It's, you know, pasta and Italian and a great wine list and walking distance from <clears throat> my apartment. And we would walk down and, you know, just pop in. And they're closing on December 23rd because the rent has gone up to the point I think they're paying $250 a square foot now. And they just can't make it work. And it's a very popular, always well-filled, always close to capacity restaurant with some notoriety and some nice publicity. And if a restaurant like that can't make it work, then you really wonder what's going to happen to everyone else. We do have the rent as the one big, 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 big economic disaster that's happening. We also have minimum wage, which for New York, does that go into full effect for $15 an hour for everyone in 2019? Yeah, 15. Well, not for everyone, but that, that is the new minimum wage. There's still a, a tip credit, but Governor Cuomo is going to eliminate that at some point. So it, eventually it'll be $15 for everybody. And then how does the tip credit impact people? Because it's a little bit of a murky idea in terms of tip credit and how it works in reality with restaurants and consumers. There's a, a minimum amount that you have to pay anybody who works in a restaurant who gets tips. Combined with that minimum amount, combined with their tips, if they're making over minimum wage, then it's legal. That's generally what a tip credit means. So instead of having to pay 15, I'm not sure exactly what it is, it's eight, eight something. And they allow you to pay only eight some eight dollars and change, because along with the tips, you're going to make more than fifteen when you walk out the door. And then, so the elimination of the tip credit means everybody makes minimum wage of fifteen dollars an hour, and then tips happen on top Correct. of that. Correct. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. It's nice to clarify that because there are a lot of things that we see in the news and in social media about what's happening in the world, and I know people have heard tip credit. I know a lot of people don't know what tip credit means. Yeah. In addition to that, we also have rising costs on ingredients and food products. And as the trend goes more and more towards farm and local and, you know, small boutique ingredients and, you know, things that are raised well with integrity and by farmers who can make a living wage... That means ingredient prices go up also. Yeah, and everybody wants that, right? When you go to your local restaurant, you want all the, the names. You want grass-fed, local, blah, blah, blah. But Organic, you, line caught. Yeah, everyone wants it, but nobody wants to pay for it. That's the problem. So you want your neighborhood place to have all these great sourced food items, right? That's what everyone's looking for. And then they, they look at the price and they say, I don't want to pay $20 for an entree. Um, I'll for go. an entree for a burger, entrees are up at like 40 now. Yeah, exactly. I think the grill has a $70 entree. They just yeah. broke that, that entree price barrier <laughs> with no problem and no looking back. Right. Why not? Um, so unless, unless the local restaurant can charge 20 bucks for a burger, um, they're not going to make it. The economics just don't work anymore. So now you have to open up a place that's 100 seats plus 
run by uh, a, a company, your company, that's just really focused on making money. And when you start focusing on the bottom line and profits, that's when you start to lose the charm of a restaurant. That's when you start to lose the hospitality that's supposed to go into the restaurant experience because everyone's looking at the bottom line and there's no way those two things go together. You will always lose hospitality and charm when your sole focus is the bottom line. That's a very interesting statement. And I think about new companies like the Sweet Greens of the world, mm-hmm. which seem to have a very successful but short track run so far and seem to be focused on creating hospitality and great product for their customers, this uh, great working environment for their employees, along with a very robust bottom line. Is that a different type of business because it's fast casual? Is that a different type of mentality because it was has a younger ownership that started it with support from tech? I think a lot of that is smoke and mirrors, actually. Okay, I know fair that enough. people love that fucking place, but I don't know. There's big money behind it. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, what is, the, what is success? That's an excellent question, yeah. especially in the restaurant world. Yeah, what is success? So the Sweet Green guys, they're going to, oh, they got all this money behind them, right? It's quick serve, so it's easily expandable, right? Which is what your investors want. We want to open up. Scalability. Uh, hundred in Quick scalability. three months and then 500 in six months, blah, blah, blah. So we can start seeing returns on our, on, our, on our investment. They're probably not even making money right now. So what is success to the guys who started Sweetgreen? Selling the fucking thing. The That's exit. success. The exit. The, so tech, the tech strategy. Give me a break. Is that what restaurants are supposed to be about? Most, Selling your restaurant, no. that's that's a success? I think, you know, well, if you look at the James Beard Foundation, one of the requirements for being best restaurant in the country is that you have to have been open for at least 10 years. That's also kind of stupid. No, it is. But, I mean, I think it makes a point of, you know, sort of longevity and also the time that it takes. They've got to scale create. that back. Do you <laughs> think so? Because they're not going to have anybody available. What do you think they need to scale it back to? Five? A couple of years. Three years is fine. I mean, well, if you're in business three years as a restaurant, you're, you're doing great. Interesting. Three years, I think, is the requirement to be best chef in your region. It should be for best restaurant. Did you ever see the, the list? Yes. They come up with you like, oh my god! I went to that restaurant with my parents back in the '80s, and now that's <laughs> now it's the best restaurant of the year. They got to get with the program. Well, it, is, it has a little bit of the veneer, I think, of the Academy Awards, where people win not necessarily for the role they played this year, but because they have 20 years of amazingness and they haven't been able to get around to giving them a statue. Yeah, that's what happens. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> so, from the restaurant side, do you think that restaurants are going to just sort of continue to close a pace? And will the public realize it or notice it? I think we notice it because we're very close to the industry. Do you think the general public is aware of the pending doom that's coming to the restaurant industry? Certain people in the public. If you're a person who seeks out, craves, gets off on human connection, and you like to go into a restaurant where you become a regular meaning once or twice a week, once a week is even a regular. And you like to see people who you might not know and you see them and you like to strike up conversation, talk to the owner. If you're that kind of person, you're going to feel it. 
If you're the kind of person who sits on their couch and orders tri caviar every night and says, I don't want to go out, it's too much of a fucking hassle, you're not going to notice a damn thing. So it depends on the person. One of the interesting things I've observed is most people are in favor of many of the economic cost increases that we're talking about. Most people are in favor of a higher minimum wage and people earning a living wage. The average person is in favor of farmers earning a fair wage for what they grow and people are in favor of eating good products grown locally without chemicals and organically and all those types of things. So when you line up the different economic growth points individually, I think the average person supports most of that. But the average person, I think, does not support the $20 hamburger because they're not coming out of the equation and seeing that on the plate. The public seems to be very, very resistant to the increase of the menu prices. The public needs to get over themselves. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I think what we're going to start to see is at least the, the savvy restaurateurs, and they're starting already, they're starting to treat their restaurants like a Broadway show. That's an interesting analogy. You, well, it's more than an analogy. This is a strategy. It's a strategy. About. So mm -hmm. there's this, this app this called Talk, and it's how you buy tickets to very fancy restaurants. You have to buy them in advance. It's a set price. You can't cancel your reservation. You're locked in. There's a secondary market. If you can't make it, you could try to sell them if you can't make the reservation. And you book it months in advance, the same way you'd book a Broadway show months in advance. And that's your activity for the evening. This amazing display of food and hospitality. And that's it. And that is your actual entertainment for the evening. Dinner and a show. Dinner and the show being someone treating you really nicely. And having an amazing experience. Yeah. So it's worth noting that Talk is a business that was created by Nick Kokonis, who is the investor and partner to Chef Grant Ackett's in Alinea. And he, as a restaurant owner and as a person with you know, finance and tech experience, was trying to solve some of these pain points, I think, in their restaurant and also have ways of getting people's money up, a, up front mm -hmm. and having a little bit of you know, kind of swirling capital for restaurants to be able to use as well. Versus breathing room. Breathing room. That's, that's mm -hmm. the breathing room we were talking about. You also have, you can also use talk to put down a uh, down payment, you know, reservation dollar amount to hold your space that they will charge you and then put the credit on your bill when you're there in the restaurant, which is also interesting. It works. One yep. of the biggest problems that restaurateurs have are no-shows. Yes. There's, there's a million apps, right? You go on your phone, you think, oh, I want to have dinner, I want uh, Thai food. So you make a reservation at three places. Yes, and then you cherry pick and you forget to cancel the other ones. You forget, you don't care, who gives a shit, I'm going to this place, I'm going to have dinner, and I don't care about the other two. And then the restaurateur is sitting there with a half-filled restaurant. And what are they supposed to do? charge a credit card that's not very hospitable no it's not so what can restaurants do to 
help themselves be in a better position for 2019 to maybe combat some of these things to become it's, it's it sounds like it's a fine fine line between being thoughtful and savvy about your business and crossing over into becoming Chipotle well they can open up in Charleston or Savannah, or Nashville. So go to a secondary market that's and just leave. That's, that's <laughs> just one leave option. the big towns. Just leave. You know, you can get a much bigger place for a much lower rent, and you can have a life, and you can relax. If you want to do it in New York City, though, the first thing you need to do is start looking at it a lot more like a business and less like a creative venture. So what would, the, what would the top pieces of advice that you would give somebody who's looking at their restaurant as a creative venture? I mean, I know chefs and you know chefs, so we might have a sense of what that is, but what's the difference between a creative business and a business business? You, you have to hook up. If you're the creative person, if you're the chef, if you're the amazing bartender, you better hook up with a really savvy business person. That is the combination that we're seeing is actually working. We have clients who have molded the two into this amazing restaurant group. Chef is amazing. She's the best around. Finance guy comes in, learns the business quickly and says, okay, I'm going to let you do all the creative stuff. I don't want you to even think or worry about the business stuff. I got it. Allows the creative person to do what they're supposed to be doing. Business guy does what he's supposed to be doing. They talk about it. We, they get on the same page with where they're going, and all of a sudden they've got a successful business. I'm reminded of the fashion industry to, when you're talking about this as a creative person who is in partnership with a business person. And I'm thinking specifically of one of my favorite fashion documentary films called The Last Emperor, and it's about Valentino, the designer, the Italian designer. And it's a few years old. It's really lovely if you love fashion and Italians and things like that. But Valentino is the, is the creative designer force, and they have a great deal of interviews with his business partner, who is the president of his company. And the, the business partner says, we built all the infrastructure around Valentino so that he could just be Valentino. Mm -hmm. And so Valentino does the fittings and looks at the fabric and goes to the shows and has all these moments and is you know decides on where he wants the fashion show and the music and all those things. And he's not thinking at all about licensing to Asia and duty-free shopping and advertising and Vogue magazine. The business structure around him is working on that. And I think, you know, fashion is big business and big scale, but it's also driven by single creative independent entities. And those creative people can move from house to house and be successful or not. Mm -hmm. But you always need money and smart business behind it or else it just doesn't work. It's, it's a great analogy. And that is so true in our business. If there's not a guy or a woman sitting in that back office with the green visor on. <laughs> ringing, <laughs> ringing, the ringing the calculator. <laughs> Cha-king. Click, 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 click. If they're yeah. not doing that, you're in trouble. And, I, and we unfortunately see it happen so much. Two young, really talented people come into our office. They've scrounged up their life savings. They've raised some money from their parents and their family and some friends. And they're going to put it all into this, this amazing venture of opening up a restaurant because they want to be creative and because they want to feed people. 
And then they find that it just doesn't work. Yep. Well, it's also a full-time job, making the donuts. You don't have time in the day to do the other stuff. We are going to take a quick break and find out who is helping us make the radio here at Heritage Radio. Did you know we're a 501c3 nonprofit? We keep the lights on and the mics hot out of the generosity of our members, grants, and our amazing underwriters like this one. Stay with us. Next year, Heritage Radio Network is turning 10. For the last decade, we've been committed to bringing listeners around the world the very best in food radio for free. Our small staff and incredible network of hosts work hard so that listeners can tune in each week to hear the important conversations in food policy, stay on the cutting edge of cocktail culture, and hear the latest updates in food tech. But there is no HRN without the support of listeners like you. Become a member of Heritage Radio Network today and help HRN get a strong start to our second decade. Choose from exclusive member gifts and stay in the loop on discounts to upcoming events. There's no better time to show your support. Go to heritageradionetwork.org donate and wish HRN a happy birthday. Well, if you're just joining us and you're wondering what the hell you clicked on, this is Tech Bytes, (laughs) the weekly podcast on the Heritage Radio Network, where we talk about the intersection of food and technology. Are you a member of Heritage Radio? You know, we have our fundraising at the end of the year, and we need to raise $150,000 U.S. by December 31st to keep this show on the air. If you become a member... Or give a membership to someone, makes a great gift, they always fit. You will be able to get some amazing swag. We have like t-shirts and beer koozies and tote bags. There's also some really, really great stuff if you up the ante to the three and four figure zone. 2019 is also our 10th anniversary year, so we want it to be amazing, we want to do big things, and most importantly, we still want to be around. So help us make it to our 10th year, our 10th anniversary in 2019. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate, and, you know, it'll be good karma, and it'll be good for food radio. How do you not donate if you listen? It's, It's stealing. Well... You're, st- you're, you're stealing. You're getting something for free. You're putting it in your pocket and you're walking out the store with it. Everybody's got to donate. We're going to take that clip and turn it into our repeat, uh, <laughs> our repeat commercial over and over and over again. It's just going to be David's voice coming on. If you, if you could say that again with like a hey, you know, kind of thing, then that would be fantastic. Maybe we'll get, have you do some at the end. I'm going to scare people into <laughs> donating. So we are here with David Helbron, who is founding partner and chairman of a Manhattan-based law firm called Helbron and Levy. If you want to connect with them, you can find them online at helbronlevy.com. That's H-E-L-B-R-A-U-N-L-E-V-E-Y.com. You can find them on Instagram at Helbron Levy. You can find David on Instagram at David Helbron and... Earlier in the show, he mentioned a secondary sister side hustle business called All Day Industry. Well, first of all, I don't really do Instagram, so don't look for me on Instagram. Just go to our website. Okay. Do you not do Instagram on the, on the office Instagram also? I don't do Instagram for anybody. 
Okay. I am anti-Instagram. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Tell us briefly what All Day Industry is. Alldayindustry.com is the website. It's an interesting company, I think, because it's one of those classic people ask for stuff and you made it. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. We, um, we felt like, as a law firm, we were not finishing the job with our clients. Our clients would come in and say, help me open a restaurant. And we would help them open a restaurant in the sense of we'd help them raise the money, we'd help them open the doors, we'd get them their liquor license, hand them the keys and say, good luck, let us know if you need anything, we're here for you. And then of course they'd start to build out and they'd look for a PR company and they'd look for a carding company and they'd look for all these vendors. You need 50 vendors to run a restaurant. Almost 75 now if you start to include all the digital stuff you need. Oh yeah, that's true. Um, <clears throat> so. Websites, internet security, who owns your payment token, online, in-house Wi-Fi, customer Wi-Fi. You're making my brain hurt. <laughs> <laughs> so we didn't like just saying goodbye. Um, and we thought that our clients could benefit from all the experience that we had through opening up, at this point, thousands of restaurants with our clients and the collective knowledge that our clients have. So we put together this amazing vendor list and uh, business, starting with the business plan people and then going through all the rest of the vendors. And now if our clients need the help, and maybe if they're first timers, they do, they come to us and we hook them up with all the best people in the industry. So we help them avoid some of the pitfalls that befall all of our clients at some point or another, which is, oh, the build-out was going to take six months, but now it took 12. Or we thought it was going to cost 300000 and now it's 700000 And I paid someone $10,000 to build my website, and someone 2500 to do the SEO, and on and on and, and on. And on and on. And so our clients now can avoid getting fleeced, and that's half the battle, honestly, in this business. You know, it used to be if you wanted to have a restaurant or a food business, you would get a space, you had your amazing family secret recipe, you would call Con Ed, you'd have them turn on the lights, <laughs> you'd get a phone installed, you'd make sure you were in the yellow pages, mm. you get the cash box, maybe get some quarters from the bank so you can make change, and you opened, and you played music, and people came, and, and it was great, and now it's so complicated. And It was like a Hallmark movie. Totally. I want to be in that movie. I know. I know. We can pretend that we're in that movie here <laughs> in the, the little bunker in our wood-burning fire pizza. But now there are so many things, and I think at the top of the show when you were talking about there are no margins and there are no extra dollars if there is an error, I think that's also because the restaurant profit margin, which people may not realize who aren't in the industry... It's about five cents on the dollar. If you're super amazing and you're getting 10 cents on the dollar, that's almost unheard of. Most people are getting a little bit less, somewhere around two or three. 10 years ago, that your expenses were split amongst the things you know, gas, electricity, permitting, taxes, real estate. But fast forward to 2019, you also have to pay for all of the online, electronic, software, all those things which didn't exist. And the money didn't get bigger. The money didn't get bigger. So when I started this firm in 2005, 
the decent restaurateurs were hitting 15% profit margin. Wow. And the great ones were up around 20. That's amazing. And, and you can make a living. Think about it. You can make little, a nice living. If you're doing $2 million a year, which is what a, a decent neighborhood restaurant does in, in Brooklyn or Manhattan, and you're hitting 15%, that's, that's $300,000 um, to your bottom line. Take some off for some things that happen, and maybe you're walking away with $150,000. You're not, not too bad. You're working 100 hours a week, but it's not bad. It's not a bad living. Now, 5% is kind of the norm. If you're hitting 10%, you're an all-star. And so, again, there's the squeeze. There's the loss of breathing room, and it's killing everybody. What people don't realize also is that Try Caviar and all of these delivery-based apps take such a huge chunk out of the restaurants. They take 30 to 40% of the cost of that meal. So when you're sitting on your couch and you're ordering Tri Caviar, the restaurateur is getting pennies on that actual dish. We did an episode in 2015 called Are Delivery Services Bad for Restaurants? And we had two independent single-unit restaurant owners on the show. And they spoke anonymously because of the non-disclosure components of the Seamless and Grubhub contracts. And they talked about the expense to the restaurant of people using these services. And I, it's still a very, very valid show. And it's a little bit heartbreaking because one of the restaurant owners talks about how the majority of people who are ordering through Seamless are actually on the block or in a one or two block radius of the restaurant. And it costs him anywhere from, you know, 15 to 25% per order. And so I said to him, how much does Seamless take? And he said, anywhere from 15 to 25%. And I said, what's your profit margin on an order? And he said, maybe around 20. I said, so how do you make any money? And he said, I don't. I said, so why do you do it? And he said, because 80% is better than no percent. And he felt like if he wasn't on Seamless, he would lose business. Even though you can call the restaurant and order, you can order through the restaurant's website, that simple transaction of who you decide to place your order with for delivery can make or break a place. And I don't think that the people who are you know, sitting on their couch literally above the restaurant Jesus. have any idea. And I, you know, what also most people don't realize, it's so fascinating to me, there's a whole... Uh, population of people who are very voracious about being informed and supporting local businesses and supporting farms and supporting good things and think global, act local. And yet this is the same group of people that are, to your point, ordering caviar, try caviar and Seamless and Grubhub and all those things who are putting money into a corporate account somewhere not in their city and not putting money actually back into their neighborhood. You can't support a restaurant with your thumbs. You can support a restaurant That's with... That's a great line. You with, can't support a restaurant with your thumbs. You can. You got to support them with your feet. Walk into your restaurant, take a seat, say hello, and be a human being. Have a connection with somebody. Order some food. Talk to the wait staff. Talk to the bartender. Say hi to the owner. 
it's really nice. Try it. You like it. <laughs> so for the customers, for the public, they need to spend more time in the restaurants one-on-one and people need to get ready for continuing to see the menu prices climb? I don't know if they're going to continue to climb. We just saw this whole thing happen with tips included. And What do you mean by that specifically, well, tips included? Everybody, there were some major restaurant tours in, here in the city who tried to eliminate tipping, meaning that they would just pay their staff uh, a normal higher wage and they would raise their prices on their menu to have tips included in the price of the food. I think there's one left that's actually doing it, maybe two. And everybody else has abandoned the idea. And they've abandoned the idea because people are reluctant to dine in a restaurant when they see prices that are above what they're used to paying. doesn't matter if you say tips included and scream it and put it in neon. People still don't care. They see that $23 burger and they think 23 bucks, that's too much. I'm not going to eat there. Do you think that might change if the tip credit goes away? It might. It might. But probably not. I think Americans also just like to tip. They like to have the control of saying, I'm going to decide whether or not you did a good job and reward you or penalize you accordingly. I think it's more about the reward, honestly. I think people like to reward. It makes them feel good. There's some kind of a rush you get when you say, I'm going to give that person not just 18%, but 19%, and you add an extra dollar. It makes you feel nice. I wonder if people are on autopilot with tipping with things like Uber and other payment things and apps where you can just set your gratuity automatically and then you never think about it again. They probably are. I mean, what do you see now when you get a bill? 20%, 22%, 25 They give you 17 options of what to tip. You don't have to do any math. You choose one option and then you you walk out (laughs) of the restaurant. I think that's helpful, though. I think that's helpful. I don't mind it. So restaurant people need to think of themselves more like businesses and find business partners to help them stay on the black side of the ledger and not go into the red. And consumers need to accept the current pricing, spend more time in restaurants, and less time on apps. Is that a good summary? I think so. And I also think that restaurants need to really embrace social media. As much as I don't personally embrace it, our clients who are doing well have a system in place for dealing with social media from the time they consider opening their restaurant. There's a strategy involved in getting out to people and bringing them actually into the restaurant. And we have some clients who serve very average to good food, but they have a very strong social media presence. And they combine those two things with real hospitality in the restaurant. And those clients are blowing it out of the water. So if you can combine old-school hospitality with modern technology and you can find a happy middle ground between the two, you might have a shot. Social media as a make-or-break element for a restaurant, so interesting. Not the wine list, not the craft cocktails, not the pastry chef, not the delivery service, but social media. 
Typically, in your experience, are you seeing restaurants that are running their social media internally with someone in-house, or are they working with agencies outside? Uh, both. Honestly, it's a combination. But those who are those who are succeeding are doing it every day. Their message is on point. We are this type of place. You will have this type of experience when you come here, and you'll be able to share this amazing life you're going to live when you're in our place with all of your friends out there in social media land. Okay. So visit your restaurant, visit your local restaurants, but maybe you discover them on social media. We have clients now who are building out their restaurant with alcoves for people to take Instagram photos. That's amazing. And they're talking to their lighting artists now and they are making certain areas that are for photography of food. So you can Instagram it and it's going to look good. Every table has a certain kind of spotlight. It's, it's a whole new, it's a whole new That's world. That's amazing. We're going to have to talk to you about who some of those restaurants are and maybe have one of them come on the show as the Instagram build out. Because um, that is absolutely fascinating. Lighting in a restaurant has always been important, but it's been more about how people look and feel and how the food looks. It used to be sexy, right? Yeah. How, yeah. Make it make everyone make look everyone good. Make everyone get that nice glow, Soft. not too much. Yes. Light, oh my God, you know. you're so beautiful. Yes. Now, I can't see. Can you turn the lights up? I want to hold take a my, picture. Hold the phone. Take a picture. Who knows? Maybe in the future when you make a reservation, you know, back in the day it used to be, do you want to sit in smoking or non-smoking? <laughs> maybe, you'll, maybe you'll have social media tables and non-social media tables. I think that's brilliant. You know, so people who are going to take 20 minutes before they start start <laughs> eating because they got the tripod right. and the setup and all that and then other people who are just going to who are just going to pass their meal in a normal kind of way. It's nice to have a wall between the two sides so they don't even have to see each other. There you go. And you don't get that flash burst in your eye. Exactly. Well, we are out of time for this episode and we are out of time for 2018. I want to thank David Helbern for coming on and talking about some dire predictions for 2019 but also some things that everyone can do to make it not so dire. Do you have any last closed thoughts about that? As dire as I may have made it seem. I think it's important for people to have a true sense of what's coming. It's true. But, but I also believe there's hope. Um, I got into the hospitality industry because I like to talk to people. Because I like the human connection. Because I don't want to be on my screen all the time. And I think there are enough people in this world who feel the same way. So much so that hospitality will survive. We may have to make some adjustments, but hospitality and restaurants aren't going anywhere. I agree that it's not going anywhere. And I think there is even a greater need in communities and in our neighborhoods for people to have a place where they can come together and speak face to face and talk with their voices because so much of our life is really um, isolated online with emojis and emails and texts and things like that where we think we're connecting with people, but there are fewer and fewer opportunities where we actually have a one-to-one, in-person, real-life connection. And I think restaurants, coffee shops, bars, all those things provide it, and I think people still need that. Maybe they need that more now than they did before. We are going to come back in 2019 for our fourth year. 2018 was the end of year number three for Tech Bytes. And before we go, I want to thank all of our engineers who make this show possible. I want to thank Matt, David, Vitor, Jeet, and Noam. 
I want to thank all the ladies in the Heritage Radio Network office who keep things running smooth and well-funded. Katie, Kat, Hannah, and Liza, and all of our interns. I want to thank DJ Uptown Nico for our amazing theme song, Nomad a CPU track. All my fellow co-hosts and unindicted co-conspirators, our sponsors, our members, the great people who have given us grants, you, our listeners. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. I'm Jennifer Leutzi. This is Tech Bytes, and I will see you next year. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.